Well, we're going to preach a little bit today um, on a, a woman in the Bible uh, that wanted so desperately to be a mom. Her name was Hannah. You know, oftentimes in life, we find ourselves searching for something, don't we? Find ourselves searching. I mean, sometimes just innocently searching, like we're searching for something we lost, like our keys or our phone or our wallet or the remote control. That's a big problem. Or some moms will understand this, a matching sock in the dryer or your pet or your own kid. Sometimes we're searching for information. Did you know that Google receives over 63,000 searches per second? Which translates into at least 3.8 million searches per minute, 228 million searches per hour, 5.6 billion searches per day, and 2 trillion searches per year? Yeah, just ask Google for the math. They'll say that's right. (laughs) Sometimes we're searching for things we want. Thank God for Amazon Prime, right? There are 150 million Amazon Prime subscribers, and it's growing by the day. 4,000 items sold every minute on Amazon, and they're estimated to bring over $729 billion of revenue in 2022. That's a lot of searching. In our text today, Hannah is searching. She's not searching for something she's lost. She's searching for something she's never had. She's not searching for useless information. She's searching for answers from heaven. She's not searching for the latest deal on Amazon. She's searching for a son. She's barren. She's infertile. She's unable to have babies. And and it absolutely devastated her. She just wants to be a mom. That's why I'm calling the message today a searching mother. A searching mother. Look at verse number one and verse number two with me. Now there was a certain man of Vermont, of, oh man, I practiced this twice today, of a place that starts with an R and has a dash and then starts with a Z and ends with a comma. You know that place. Of Mount Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam and the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. And the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. She was barren. Now, as devastating as infertility is today for women, in those days, it was even more distressing. According to the Jewish Talmud, a person without children was considered, I quote, as good as dead. In Hannah's culture, barrenness was even a legitimate grounds for divorce. Women who were unable to bear children experienced cultural shame. People looked on on them with shame rather than respect. They, They felt useless. This is what Hannah was going through. Of course, in Old Testament biblical narratives, this theme of barrenness comes up a lot. That's because barrenness, I think, is an effective metaphor for emptiness that that just human beings feel so often. Barrenness represents something missing in your life that you can't feel yourself. Barrenness represents what I'll call today a God-sized void. And I call it a God-sized void because God is the only one that can truly fill it. 
This void might not come to you and me the same way it came to Hannah, but the pain of emptiness and barrenness, no matter how it comes to you, is still the same. And it's important for you to know that if you're experiencing some kind of void or barrenness or emptiness in your life today, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person. It just means that you feel like something is missing in your life that you wish was there. For some, the void today is a barren womb. How could I speak about a woman who was struggling with infertility and not, and not talk to the women in here who might be struggling with the same thing? The couples in here who might be struggling with the same thing, having experienced that ourselves. Jenny and I know the, the deep pain and, and emptiness and, and void that infertility leaves in the heart of a couple that longs to be parents. If you're struggling with that today, God knows. God sees you. God cares about that. When your friend gets pregnant on accident and you can't get pregnant on purpose and you try not to be jealous, God knows that. God sees that. And may I say for those of you who who have kids and counting, that there are some women in here who can't. And we ought to be sensitive to that as a church and pray for them because God has a way of opening up the barren womb Like he did for Jenny and I. For others in here, the void you're experiencing is a result of a bad home life. You're right now missing out, or maybe you did miss out on having a loving father. Or a present mother. You didn't cause that. You can't control it, you can't fix it, but it leaves a void in your life. I think for some, the void is relational. You feel like you're supposed to be married, but you're not. You have been married, but your marriage failed. You were married happily for a long time, but now you're a widow or a widower. Or maybe the relational void has nothing to do with marriage. You're just void of a real authentic friendship. And if you're honest, that relational void is sometimes devastating to you. I could talk about the void you feel because of failing health or chronic pain or a lack of career success or or because of mistakes you've made and opportunities you've forfeited from your own bad decisions. We all know what it's like to have a God-sized void in our life, just like Hannah, a place of barrenness that only God is able to fill. There's little or nothing you can do about it. God has to come through. God has to provide. God has to fix this. And here's what I found so often when I'm going through something like this in my life. God isn't the only one that knows. The devil knows. Our enemy starts to attack our vulnerabilities. That's what happens to Hannah. And it happens through Elkanah's second wife, Penina. Penina had a lot of children, according to verse 1. She's the one that had children on accident. And she didn't hesitate to rub it in Hannah's face. Every year about this time, she would just do just that. Look at verse 6. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. As he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord. So she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Satan used Penina to remind Hannah of her own infertility. The narrator chose to use the word provoke on purpose because the Hebrew word literally means to thunder or to roar. It was a type of word that they would use to describe being caught in a dangerous storm. 
In other words, Penina would provoke Hannah daily to the point where Hannah's emotions were thundering and roaring on the inside. So much so that on this particular day, she had no appetite. Have you ever been there? Even if a tasty meal was put in front of you, you were so broken, so distracted, so depressed, so provoked internally that you just don't even want to eat. Think about this. Hannah's already vulnerable. Penina was the devil's way of getting Hannah to a point of hopelessness because he wanted Hannah to to hurt so deeply that she tried to fill her void with something other than God. And the devil does the same thing to us. He not only knows our weak spots, he knows our weak times. Did you hear me? He not only knows our weak spots where you're most vulnerable, he knows the times in your life in which you're most vulnerable. He knows when to provoke you the most. He knows when to pick at you the most. He knows when to accuse you the most. And he will do so in an effort to get you to turn from God and not to God. He'll whisper to you, it'll never change. You might as well give up. He'll whisper to you, if God really loved you, why is he letting this happen? He'll whisper to you, if church was worth it, why haven't you been fixed yet? He'll whisper to you, if your life is really worth living, why is it so hard right now? He'll whisper to you, look at all the people you work with. They don't put God first, but yet they're really happy. Yet you're over here doing the God thing all the time and you're really sad. Is it worth it? See, the devil will work daily, relentlessly, just like Penina to get you thinking about every other option than God. And it doesn't end there. About that time, Elkanah will come along. Elkanah was Hannah's husband. He truly loved her. And he wanted to show her a kind gesture to lift her spirits, but unintentionally, he almost became like a false savior to her in this moment. Look at verse 4. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. We're talking about a meal here, food. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord has shut up her womb. What was happening? Well, as a sign of his affection... Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion of food. Now that's kind of an odd way of showing affection to a woman, I think. I mean, imagine Elkanah sitting there with his two wives, reaching over to Hannah's plate, romantically weaking at her, then giving her two scoops of mashed potatoes. I mean, that's kind of a weird attempt to romance your wife, right? As you could expect, it didn't work. Not just because it was flat out weird, but because Hannah had no appetite. So Elkanah tried again, this time with his words. If food won't work, then maybe what I say will work. Look at verse 8. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? And not I better to thee than ten sons? In other words, Hannah, you have everything you need in me. Why? That's a confident husband, by the way. I've tried to say that to Jenny and she doesn't believe me. Even after I gave her two scoops of mashed potatoes. Why are you sad? Listen, Hannah, my love for you is going to be more than, than the love of ten sons combined. What was Elkanah doing? He was trying sincerely to offer Hannah romantic salvation. Telling her that through his love, this void for a son, this void that that, that infertility is bringing her life, it'll be filled. 
Hannah, I'll love you. That's all you need. But the problem, church, is that Elkanah's romantic solution failed to address Hannah's hurt. Year after year, they would go up for the sacrifice and Elkanah's devil portion couldn't calm the storm in Hannah's heart. And the same thing happens in our lives after experience this, this, this painful combination of having a void in our heart and being provoked by Satan to the point of hopelessness. Right at that point, an Elkanah, a false savior, will come along to fill that void. A false savior that will make us promises even sincerely that he cannot deliver. Sometimes Elkanahs come in the form of something obviously bad. Alcohol. Drugs. Pills. Porn. Self-harm. Sinful things that will dull the pain of our reality temporarily. But at other times, Elkanah comes in the form of something not so obviously bad. And sometimes we don't even know we're, we're trying to fill our emptiness with these things. I'm talking about things like work. Like food. Like your spouse. Like your kids. Or your grandkids. Or spending money. Or hobbies. Or vegging out. Or just traveling in general. Things that that just like Elkanah was to Hannah. Not sinful. Not bad. But something other than God. To fill a God-sized void. Here's what we have to understand. God-sized voids cannot be filled with man-sized solutions. I think sometimes even good-meaning Christians can try to fill their void with with ministry and service to the Lord. Where everything they do is wrapped up in what they do. That's dangerous. Our tendency is to cling to false saviors that have no power because we feel like these things in the moment are the best options. But the truth of the matter is, is that most of our hurt and most of our disappointment in life doesn't come from the void that we're experiencing as much as it comes from attempting to fill that void with something or somebody other than God himself. So what would Hannah do? She had this void. She's been provoked to the point of hopelessness. And at just the right time, she was being offered the false savior of romance to fill that void. Would she take the bait? Would she do something just to feel good in the moment? Or would she fill that void with God? Look at the very first phrase of verse 9. So Hannah rose up. You'd be tempted to read that little phrase and treat it like a passive detail. Like, like the narrator saying... This is a transitional part in the story. Hannah gets up and she walks from the kitchen to the living room. Now we're going to go to a different detail. No, no, no. The Hebrew phrase for rose up, it it, it indicates decisive action. She does not stand up passively. She stands up uh, with purpose, with, with intention. She stands up resolved. She's about to do something on purpose. What is it? Look at verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul. And prayed unto the Lord. She got up. Her circumstances didn't change. She was weeping. She was bitter in her soul because God wasn't answering her prayer. But what did she do? She went straight to her prayer closet. She said, I will not fill this void with a well-meaning husband. I will not fill this void with a well-prepared meal. I will fill this void with God. 
The searching mother sought God. God-sized voids can only be filled with God-sized solutions. This is what Hannah chose to do. I'm going to forsake the romance of my well-meaning husband and instead I'm going to seek God through prayer. Can I talk to you for a moment? Prayer is the best thing you can do for your soul and your heart and your mind during times of suffering. If you're going to complain, complain to God. If you're going to cry, cry to God. If you're going to be bitter in your soul, take it to God. The psalmist David models this. Many of his psalms of lament where he's crying out to God were written during seasons of intense suffering in his life when he was running from his maniac father-in-law who was trying to kill him. He ran from one dark cave to the next, isolated, everything taken away from him. Life was a disaster, but what did he do? He looked up to the heaven and he cried out to his God. The prophet Daniel modeled prayer for us when he was living in a godless society. Yet he went to his window three times a day and he prayed out in the open, even though he knew he was going to get thrown in a lion's den for doing so. Jesus modeled prayer during suffering for us when in the garden he knelt down and prayed to his father just hours before going to the cross. The early church in the book of Acts modeled prayer for us as they were being persecuted for preaching the gospel. Whenever the authorities, the Sanhedrin, came to them and said, do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They went and they held a prayer meeting and they prayed for more boldness to preach in the name of Jesus, even though it meant certain persecution. The apostle John modeled prayer during suffering when he was isolated all by himself and Jesus gave him the revelation and he prayed, even so come Lord Jesus. And Hannah does the same thing. When she could have given up, when she she could have gotten bitter, when she could have filled her void with what her husband was offering her, she didn't. She chose rather to take her burden to the Lord and leave it there. And it's in her prayer It's in her vow that she made to the Lord through her prayer that we get to see what it looks like to fill a God-sized void with a God-sized solution. How do we know if during our seasons of barrenness we're letting God fill us? Well, Hannah shows us. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid. Look up here for a second. She she referred to herself as one of God's. Did you see that? If thou will look on the affliction of thine handmaid and not forget thine handmaid. She didn't forget God's goodness in the midst of all of this. How do you know if God's filling your void and you're not going to other temporary fixes? Here's how you know. First of all, you still believe he's good even though you're barren. By Hannah pleading with God to remember her, Hannah indicates that she really perceives intellectually that God sees her. And God knows her plight. And God knows what she's going through. She even calls God the Lord of hosts. She could have called him all kinds of names. She called him the Lord of hosts. Which means that that he has this power, this transcendent power over all the angelic hosts of heaven. The indication is that Hannah knew in her heart That God was so good that even though he was transcendent 
and powerful like he is, that he does not forget her own barrenness. How do you know that you're filling your void with God? When you're barren, when you're empty, when something is missing in your life that you want, you still believe that God loves you. You still believe God cares for you. You still believe God sees you, God remembers you, and you still believe you are God's. It's when you haven't gotten what you've prayed for, but you still believe that if he notices every sparrow that falls to the ground, he will notice and care about every detail of your life. It's when you look around at other people who have what you so desperately want, yet you still believe in your heart that if God will take time to clothe the flowers of the field which are short-lived, then he will meet the needs of his own child who is destined to live with him for all eternity. Listen, friend, when you get to the point where you are no longer believing by faith that God is good or that God still remembers you, you are destined to fill your void with something other than him. Notice, secondly, you know God is filling the void when your joy is not dependent upon getting what you're asking for. We're just applying this text. When your joy is not dependent upon God saying yes to you. Look at the latter part of verse 11. Then I will give. She prays and asks for a son. Now she negotiates with God and makes a deal. Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. Hannah says, God, give me a child. And then she says this, if you do, I'll give him back. The detail about no razor touching the boy's head shows that Hannah is invoking what the Israelites called a Nazarite vow. This was a special provision for those in the nation of Israel who wanted to serve God like a priest. See, normally only those sons born into the house of Levi, the priestly tribe, were allowed to serve in the temple. But if a person outside of the Levite tribe desired to serve God in this way, his parents could take a Nazarite vow to consecrate that child. So when Hannah takes this vow... It means she is giving up all claims to her son so that he could live in the temple and serve God. In other words, she renounces everything that would have been valuable about having a son. Follow this. Her son would not grow up in her house. She she would not experience his emotional and physical support. He would not be available to take care of her in her old age. He would have no land inheritance for the family, just as the Levites had no land allotment in Israel. Get this, Hannah prayed for a son, but laid aside every benefit a son could have given her. And you would think that this kind of negotiation with God would make her even more sad, right? What would-be mom would beg for a son than offer to give that son away? That sounds depressing to me. Yet look down at verse 18 after her prayer was all said and done. So the woman went her way and did eat. And her countenance was no more sad. Now we skipped some verses, but let me tell you what was not in those verses. God's answer. Hannah didn't say, God, give me a child. And if you do, I'll give him back. Okay, boom, you're pregnant. No, her countenance changed before God answered her prayer. She was joyful even though she wasn't pregnant. For all she knew, 
The same thing that's happened every year at this time was going to happen again. I'll pray, pour out my heart and soul to God, and he'll tell me no again. She had every reason, humanly speaking, to get up from that altar in the temple and walk away sad, given her history. Yet she is joyful before she ever finds out she's pregnant. How? Here's how. Because she found a source of joy in something greater than her hope of a son. She found her greatest joy in worshiping God himself. Get this, she had communed with God. She had talked with God. She had prayed to God. She had worshiped God. She had poured her heart and soul out to God for what had been hours. Because when Eli walks by her in the temple, we didn't read this, but when he walked by in the temple, he thought she was drunk. That's how overwhelmed she was. That's how much, how much sorrow was oozing out of her. What's amazing is that she stayed in prayer long enough and she poured out her soul to God honestly enough that she was able to find joy in the Lord even though her circumstances hadn't yet changed. Here's the point. You know God is filling the void in your life when you can genuinely rejoice in Him even though He hasn't given you what you've asked Him for. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I want to be realistic. Many of us will never have a child despite asking God for one. Many will never get a better paying job even though you've worked hard and prayed for one. Many will never get well again from their sickness even though you've asked God to heal you. By all the world's standards, many may die barren. I know that's the opposite of what you heard on the TV preacher this morning. But that's the truth. God doesn't promise that just because we pray long enough that we can strong arm him into doing for us what we want him to do for us. That's not what this story is teaching us. This story teaches us that we may remain barren, but if we have God, we have enough. If you have a loving and powerful God at the center of your life and you make a habit of daily worshiping Him, praying to Him, pouring out your soul to Him, you will be able to endure the most difficult of struggles and the most empty seasons of your life and you will do it with joy if you have God. Well, I don't have joy. That's not a God problem. It's not His fault. Yeah, it is. He's let this thing happen to me. He won't answer my prayer. Hannah teaches us that he doesn't have to answer your prayer. And you don't have to have your way for your countenance and your attitude and your spirit to be that of joy. What do we have to do? Just pray. Pray again. Pray again. Pour out your heart before God. Well, I did. How many times? Well, I did it for like five minutes yesterday. Finding joy in the midst of sorrowful circumstances is not a quick fix. We don't just go to God and then put a band-aid on our our problem. The band-aid falls off almost instantly. It's when you make a rhythm and a habit of privately worshiping God through your most difficult of storms that you can maintain a sense of happiness and joy. Let me give you one more and be done. You know you're feeling God You're filling your void with God when you can get what you want from him without replacing him with it. Let me abbreviate the end of the story for you. Hannah got pregnant. God gave her the son she was searching for. Can I ask you a question? Do you think after Hannah got Samuel that she was tempted to be an Indian giver? Come on, moms. 
The thought had to cross her mind the first time she saw his face. Held him in her arms. Gave him his first bath. Fed him for the first time. Cuddled him and sang to him. Come on, do you think it ever crossed her mind? Man, I don't know if I'm going to fulfill this deal. Yes, he was human. But the rest of the story says that after she weaned him, she gave him to the Lord. She took him to the temple and dropped him off. How? Moms don't do that. How? Well, because as much as she loved Samuel, Samuel wasn't her everything. God was. How do you know? Because in chapter 2, she wrote a song about God. In the first part of chapter 2, she states her joy being found in the Lord. And that the Lord, watch here, the Lord is her rock. She didn't write a song about Samuel being her rock. I know your favorite country artist writes one about his son being his rock and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's not scriptural. Our kids are not our rock. Our spouses are not our rock. I know we say that and, and I get what you mean by that. You mean well by that. I mean well by that. Like they're the rock I need. And I get that. They're a source of encouragement and stability and security in your life. But hear me. Do not, do not use them as the rock when Jesus is supposed to be your rock. You build your life on your children. You build your life on your money. You build your life on your marriage. You build your life on your career. It will be sinking sand for you. Sinking sand. It'll feel solid in the moment. But because that person or that thing is not infallible like God is, they will, they will disappoint you. You know, it says a lot about a person's relationship with God when they can ask for something from him. Get what they ask for, but still keep God at the center of their life. But we don't do that. We so often say, God, give me this or take this away. And and when he answers the prayer, whatever he gives us becomes the center of our life. God, give me children. He gives them to us. They become God. God, give me a spouse. He gives us one and our life is centered on that person. God, give us a financial raise. He gives us one and we use it irresponsibly. God, give me healing. He gives it to us. But we use our newfound energy for selfish interest. The Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. May we never get so caught up with the gift that we neglect the giver. I don't know what you're facing today. But can I encourage you to always fill your God-sized voids with God-sized solutions. The devil will whisper to you. He will bully you. He'll tempt you with man-sized solutions for your problem. But those will fail you every time. Here's my, here's my application to you. Just pray. Have you stopped praying? Have you stopped? You lo- have you lost heart? Have you lost faith? Have you stopped pouring out your heart and soul to God? Because you feel like maybe he's not listening or remembering or seeing you. Oh, he is. Think you pay this much attention to a barren woman in the Middle East. He knows your address too. He knows your problem too. He knows what stresses you out too. He knows what disappoints you right now. He knows that friend. Believe it again. Believe it. Remember that he's good even if you don't have everything you want. Remember that you can be still joyful if you don't have everything you want because God is enough. Remember that if God does give you what you want, he still deserves your utmost worship and adoration. As we close, it's important to realize that this story 
It's not just an isolated incident about an infertile woman, an antagonistic sister wife, a romantic husband and a miracle child. Hear me, it's about us and how King Jesus came to save us. Don't miss this, please. This is the most important part, in my, in my opinion, of the whole message. Just like God brought Samuel to Israel through a poor girl named Hannah who didn't have anything going for her. He brought Jesus to us through a poor Nazarite girl named Mary who didn't have anything going for her either. See, Samuel was sent by God to Israel because Israel was in a terrible condition. Their relationship with God was broken. They needed a priest to connect them back to the Lord. And we needed the same thing. Not a prophet, not a priest. We needed a savior. Someone that could connect us to the Father and make us right with Him. Our sin separated us from God. And without Him, we have this gigantic void in our life. That's why God sent His only begotten Son so that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent Jesus to be the solution to our sin problem. That's why we need Hannah's story today. Because it teaches us that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is the only thing that can adequately fill the void in our soul. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the answer, hear me friend, you'll forever be empty on the inside. You will search and search and search and search. You can add all kinds of things to your life and you can try to fill it up. But they will eventually run out. Jesus is the only one that can truly meet the needs of your soul. To the searching moms in here today. Who might feel a little bit like Hannah. Your soul is troubled. Your body is tired. Your mind is racing. Your heart might even be broken. You're going to be tempted to find your joy and your rest and your relief in something other than God. Even your own children. Even your own husband. If that's you, can I invite you back to the altar today to, to just find rest for your soul in your true rock, Jesus Christ? And on this Mother's Day, say, God, would you please restore unto me the joy of my salvation? Because let's be honest, being a mom is really, really hard. It's rewarding, it's joyful. You love it. But it makes your soul tired sometimes. It makes your mind race at night. And it brings a level of anxiety and worry for your children that just people who aren't moms don't quite understand. And if you have used temporary solutions to feel that barrenness that just motherhood brings into your life, would you just come and rest on God again today? Would you do that? That's the invitation. It's not just to moms, it's to everybody. Find your rest. In Jesus. Because God-sized voids can only be filled with God-sized solutions. Would you stand to your feet, everybody?